Welcome to State Bar of Michigan's On Balance Podcast, where we talk about practice management and lawyer wellness for a thriving law practice with your hosts, Joanne Hathaway and Tish Vincent, here on Legal Talk Network. Take it away, ladies. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the State Bar of Michigan's On Balance Podcast on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Samantha Meinke sitting in today for Joanne Hathaway and Tish Vincent, and I'm joined today by my coworker, Rob Mathis. Good morning. Thanks for joining me, Rob. With me today, as well as Rob, are three of our distinguished judges from the west side of Michigan, Judge Christopher Yates, Judge John Halsing, and Judge Timothy Hicks. Welcome, everybody. Good morning, morning Sam. Thanks. Good morning. If I could, could I have you guys kind of go down the line and introduce yourselves a little bit better than that and tell us which court you're with and what you do? Sure. Uh, I'm Chris Yates. I'm a Kent County Circuit Judge right here in Grand Rapids, and I run the Specialized Business Docket. I've been doing that for about six and a half years, and I've been a judge for a little more than 10 years. I'm John Hulsing. I'm an Ottawa County Circuit Court Judge. I have been on the bench for 12 years. I'm in the Criminal and Civil Division. Beginning in 2019, I will be the circuit court representative to the Judicial Tenure Commission, so I will be able to uh, review Judge Hicks's behavior while he is on the bench in case he engages in misconduct. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Tim Hicks from Muskegon, and there's some potential for that because I've served 22 years already, and I'm in my last term. I spent a few years uh, teaching and coaching in a couple of rural school districts, and I still bring some of those lessons into the courtroom. I should say this, it's great to be with these other two folks, and all three of us have been very active in professional associations, such as the Michigan Judicial Institute and the Michigan Judges Association. So that's really a great uh, source of uh, knowledge for all of us. Fantastic, I can feel the camaraderie in here as we get started. And I know you guys were part of the educational track that we have going on here at NEXT Conference in Grand Rapids, the Judicial Perspectives track. And you guys talked today about top tips for presenting your summary disposition motion. Rob, do you have a question for them to kick us off about that? So um, what are some tips that you would like to provide? Be prepared. How so? Know the court rules. Know your case. Pay attention to the details. Uh, these motions are really important, and you would be surprised at how many people founder on just elemental mistakes. Like they say something's attached, then it isn't. Uh, they say the pictures are attached, then they aren't. Uh, they deliver their stuff too late for us to really effectively use it. You know, these are big motions with big briefs, and I know most of us, and certainly all three of us, work hard so that we can, when possible, give you a decision on the day of your hearing. And when your brief comes in the day before or the day of, we can't do that. And we don't appreciate that. So be prepared. I would obviously agree with what Judge Hicks has to say. And if I may add, when you submit your written materials, make sure that the materials are legible. For example, if it's a contract issue and your client has submitted to you the 50th copy of a 50th copy in a six-point print, it's probably going to be illegible, so make sure that the actual document, which is the heart of the case, is actually decipherable to the decision-maker. Again, make sure that your arguments are presented in a cogent way, and if you are arguing a C-8 motion, don't start talking about C-10 issues, such as what the facts show or those types of things. So keep it nice and tight. Know what your arguments are, and make sure that your legal arguments follow what your legal position is. 
I'd like to add a thought about oral arguments specifically. Be flexible. Occasionally, I'll have people show up for oral argument with a PowerPoint presentation, which is about the most ineffective way to present an argument. Uh, we come to the bench well-prepared. We have lots of questions, and the best thing that an attorney can do is listen and answer those questions. Because if you want to move the ball at oral argument, the best way to do it is to answer the judge's questions. And attend the Judicial Perspectives track at next conference to learn all these tips, of course, yes. right? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be helpful. <laughs> now, we've shared all our secrets this time, so there's nothing left. The challenge is sometimes we're preaching to the choir. Uh, some of these folks are here to enhance their skills, and they're already doing a lot of the right stuff. Uh, the people we need to reach are some of, some of the ones who aren't here. But it's helpful. Some of the, the people who did attend ask really, really good questions, such as, you know, if the judge is asking me questions or is not asking me questions, what does that mean? The judge is looking at me or is not looking at me, what does that mean? And try not to worry about those types of things. The decision maker is going to do what the decision maker does. Similarly, uh, trying to figure out what a jury is thinking is virtually impossible until the decision comes back. So don't read anything more into what the judge is asking, uh, aside from the judge wants to know what your position is. Answer the question so that the judge has the information before him or her to make the appropriate decision. Don't get sidetracked on these other irrelevant issues. I know they can cause you to lose concentration, but again, keep to what your mission is. It's one of persuasion. And if, if I could just add one more thought to that as well. We talked about this at length in our discussion, but avoid exchanges of insults with opposing counsel. There is nothing less effective at an oral argument than to start throwing barbs at each other, to accuse the other side of misciting a case or to excuse the other side of holding back a brief. Judge Hicks, I know, has particularly strong feelings about this, but I think we all really detest that. So you're encouraging civility in the yes. courtroom. Is that right? Yes. You know, I, I like to refer people back to the golden rule. Really. I don't need to be hokey about it, mm -hmm. but treat the other side like you want to be treated. And it's just, you know, I, I, I don't appreciate it. It doesn't help your client when you personalize everything. You know, you castigate the other team as some kind of a criminal or something like that. Or if you see us a lot, if you always ask for sanctions, uh, we're going to tune you out. And that's not the way you want to be treated. Mm -hmm. And just because somebody sues your client... It doesn't mean that person is somehow a flawed character. People have claims. Absolutely. There's nothing that I like more than a really tough legal battle in the courtroom, something that is engaging and that really requires some thought and strong advocacy. And I won't back down to those decisions, and, and none of us will. But that legal fight is not a personal fight between the attorneys. While I thrive on making decisions that, uh, you know, may cause one side or the other some angst, what causes me angst is having to referee the personal barbs between the attorneys. It's, it's not enjoyable. And in fact, it makes me uncomfortable because this is not how the court is supposed to be. Let's talk about how it's supposed to be. Many years ago, before I became a judge, I had a personal injury case up in Ludington, and my, I was the plaintiff, representing the plaintiff, and the guy on the other side was from one of the big Grand Rapids firms. And we went up, we argued a motion, I lost the motion, and he said, let's go out for lunch. And he said, the guy who wins the motion buys lunch. And that became the basis of a great friendship that continues even until today. And as the case went on, we continued that relationship. 
And it's really important. For example, if you're coming to court for a motion argument on Monday, and if you see a last-minute case on Thursday, call the other person, let them know, or let her know. Say, hey, look, I don't have time to do a brief, but I'm going to be citing this case, or I've got some new evidence, I'm going to email it to you right now. So you have it. It can work. You, you can do it the way you're supposed to do it if you make the commitment. And remember this, even though we may not see you a lot, you build a reputation with the court and with the judges, even with just one or two cases, you build a reputation as being a whiner or somebody who's on time or somebody who calls my assistant for reference to the court rules. So, oh yeah, they call my assistant and they ask, what about this? What's the rule say about this? When's my brief due? Can I ask really quickly, sure. are the court rules available online or something to help these attorneys not call your assistant in the future? They are. So they can find them on the Muskegon <laughs> County website, for instance? Well, they probably won't find them on our website, but they're all over the place. Right. The, the court rules are readily available on the Michigan Supreme Court website. Gotcha. And I can amplify the point that Judge Hicks just made because two days ago, somebody called one of my scheduling assistants and asked when the time to file appeal was going to run out. She's <laughs> not an attorney. That's not fair to ask her. Well, most attorneys, they have their court rules with in their briefcase, right? You would think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, I mean, just like roughly, um, what percentage of attorneys are could uh, stand some improvement in this round? Well, let's, what percentages of them are doing the job the way it should be done, maybe? Yeah. yeah. On these summary disposition motions, 40%. That's my 40%, guess. 40%, wow. What do you think? Yeah, about that, about that. In the business docket, what I find is that the work is always thorough. My only concern is sometimes it's too thorough. Uh, and so if, if you handle complex business cases, as opposed to what I used to do when I was on the general civil criminal docket, back in the old days when I had general civil criminal cases, I'd often complain that the briefs were too short, that people had missed controlling authority. In the business docket, it's, it's exactly the opposite. I mean, people are inclined to submit a 50 or 60 page brief where 15 pages will do just fine. Or there are people we refer to as the king of string who will give you 11 string sites when there's a published Michigan Court of Appeals case right on point. So I think our concerns are different in terms of thoroughness and level of preparation. I feel a little guilty for giving you such a harsh number. Uh, you know, I was a lawyer for 13 years before I came to the bench, and I'm mindful of the challenges out there, demanding clients, sometimes clients who want you to assert frivolous claims and things like that. I think we try to work with you, and I have pretty high standards, you know. And so I see some briefs that are technically okay, but people have emphasized just about everything. I mean, just about every word is bolded. It's like that college textbook you bought where they've highlighted everything in the book. So that's unhelpful. That's right. There's nothing funnier than getting a brief with sentences bolded and underlined as if we'll somehow miss them otherwise. You know, what happens in my court occasionally, I dust off this saying that's attributed at least to Cicero, and I think to the Roman statesman Cicero and maybe to others, where he said to his friend, I would have written you a shorter letter if I had more time. And some of the briefs we see are kind of like that. They're just throwing everything in there in kind of a haphazard fashion. The haphazard is, is kind of frustrating as well uh, because you want to have the reader be able to pick up the brief and understand what you're presenting. And when standards such as CHC10 are mixed and matched and there's no cohesive history or factual pattern that is articulated in the writing that makes it difficult. Now, don't get me wrong, writing is hard, 
but sometimes I wonder if adequate review of the documents is taking place, making sure that your sites are accurate. We do check those, and I've looked up uh, many of those citations. Fortunately, most of them, the vast majority are correct, but every once in a while they're, they're not, so then I have to find out this controlling case, what the correct citation is, which again, costs time. It's not taking away from the believability of the brief because people make mistakes, that's not a problem, but just make sure things are nice and tight so that the decision maker has, again, an accurate understanding of what you're trying to present. One of the formats that I like, and I'm seeing more of this, much to my appreciation, is a one or two page introduction that walks me through the whole argument start to finish at the very beginning of the brief. So I don't have to pick it up and just plow through 25 or 30 or 35 mm -hmm. pages to get to the meat of the argument. Like an executive summary at the outset? Yes. Yeah. It's often just titled introduction, and the court rules don't specifically talk about that kind of formatting, but I really appreciate that. One thing we haven't specifically mentioned yet is the importance of taking a little bit of time to learn about the court and the judge. Does he ask a lot of questions, not ask a lot of questions? Does he have a lot of experience in this kind of law? You know, the joke we told a little while ago was, Drawing on my school teacher days, I'm a big fan of like charts and things like that. I even do opinions in charts for sometimes. And so in the middle of oral argument in a summary disposition motion, I'll go to the side and start scribbling on my whiteboard and uh, just to illustrate different points. And sometimes I'm groping for points of agreement where I can say, okay, we don't have to make this decision. And so if you're unaccustomed to that or you don't know, you're going to panic when Hicks gets off the bench and heads over to us whiteboard and start scribbling. But we all have, you know, our reputations for that, and you can find that out. The other thing is for young lawyers, it gives you a great reason to network. Uh, there's nothing that is more flattering than to call a more experienced attorney in your hometown and say, hey, I got to go to Grand Haven, and I, my, what do you know about Judge Hulsing? It gives you a good connection with that maybe experienced lawyer that you can use for other purposes. That's a really good point. Um, and maybe join your local bar association so that you can make those connections and Absolutely. feel comfortable making those phone calls. Oh, thank you for making that point. Uh, I am just coming off being the president of the Grand Rapids Bar Association, and I cannot tell you how valuable it is to be a member of and active in your local bar association. Well, I'm, I know we're talking about attorneys, but I'm curious how many pro se motions for summary disposition do you get? In the family arena, quite a few. Maybe not labeled as such, but certainly in the family division, there are a ton of people who represent themselves. So while that can be problematic, sometimes it, the judge has uh, a lot of uh, control over the case too, and it can, those cases can be resolved quickly, but sometimes not so quick. But in the criminal arena, we really don't see any pro se's, and in the non-domestic civil cases, rarely do I see any pro se litigants filing motions Sometimes when they do, sometimes they're pretty good, though, ironically. I'm going to answer your question precisely, Rob. You said how many pro se litigants file motions for summary disposition, like Judge Halsey said. Not too many, but I think probably four times a year I'm seeing pro se litigants defending these motions. You know, and sometimes they're on frivolous personal injury claims. Uh, more recently, lately, we're seeing people uh, who are defending uh, like student loan debt claims and things like that. So we are seeing people defending them more often than they're filing them. I think we're running out of time for our podcast this morning, gentlemen. Can I get a quick takeaway from each of you before we sign off? It's one most important thing you want people to take away from this. Listen to the questions asked at oral argument and answer them directly. Make sure that your written materials, supplemental written materials, are organized and legible. 
be prepared. I already said that. And be honest. And when you come in front of us, concede what you have to concede. And usually there's something you need to concede, and we respect that, and that enhances uh, the other things you're saying. The listeners of this podcast really like to look for the folks they hear on it online. Is there a way people can find you online on Twitter or LinkedIn in any way? The easiest way to find me is on Twitter, at CPY87. And there's no indication on my Twitter account that I'm a judge, but if you follow me, you'll pick up on that. I follow you, so I know that's true. (laughs) Uh, LinkedIn for myself, John Holsing. John Holsing on LinkedIn, great. LinkedIn for Tim Hicks, and the the Muskegon County website has other contact information. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you all for joining us here on the Legal Talk Network for another edition of the On Balance podcast from the State Bar of Michigan. I'm Samantha Meinke, joined by Rob Mathis. Thanks for joining us, Rob. My pleasure. Standing in for Joanne Hathaway and Tish Vincent. You can find the podcast in Apple Podcast app or online on the Legal Talk Network's website. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the State Bar of Michigan On Balance Podcast. Brought to you by the State Bar of Michigan and produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find the State Bar of Michigan and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download Legal Talk Network's free app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network or the State Bar of Michigan or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.